Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to our policy polls on unlawful eviction moratoriums. Please welcome our speakers, Giancarlo Canapero, Legal Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and Joel Griffith, Research Fellow on Financial Regulations in the Rowe Institute. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. We are going to talk today about the law and policy of eviction moratoriums. I am Giancarlo Canaparo, and I'm joined by Joel Griffith. And hello out there in the uh, internet world. We're glad that you're joining us virtually today, and it's very good to be here in person with you. So Joel, uh, we've been hearing a lot about eviction moratoriums. Uh, let's start at the beginning. What is an eviction moratorium? Uh, well, anytime that you enter into a rental agreement uh, with your landlord, if you fail to make payments in accordance with the terms of that agreement, um, the landlord can evict you from the premises for failure to pay the rent or for failing to abide by the terms of your contract. In most, in almost every state, this process is done by going to the court and having the court issue a writ of eviction, and then the county sheriff will come and escort you off the premises if you refuse to leave. And the eviction moratoriums that we have in place now stop. They, they actually criminalize the landlords from accessing the courts to defend their rights, and they actually preclude state courts from imposing eviction judgments on tenants that are in violation of the rental agreements. Interesting. So let me give you a timeline of, of how this all happened. So we had the CARES Act, which was the first of our uh, coronavirus relief bills, and it had a moratorium. And that said that for 120 days, if you are a landlord who receives federal funds, you can't evict your tenants. Uh, that expired, and then under President Trump, the CDC issued a new eviction moratorium that said, no matter whether you receive federal funds or not, uh, you can't evict tenants uh, anywhere in the country, no matter who you are, where you are. Uh, and then that was uh, always temporary, but it kept being renewed. Three, three times it was renewed. Uh, and then we recently, in the end of June, we had a Supreme Court opinion uh, on a preliminary basis. And what that means is, uh, a lower court uh, said that it ought to be um, barred from taking effect. A state is the legal term of art. The Court of Appeals here in DC undid the stay, and then the Supreme Court considered whether it should reimpose the stay. And uh, four justices said they would, four justices said they wouldn't, and Justice Kavanaugh was the tiebreaker and the only justice to write an opinion. And he said, I think it's unlawful, but uh, because the government needs more time, to sort of disperse uh, aid funds, and because it's going to expire in a month, we're going to let it go. Uh, so that is where it stood until, of course, uh, just as it was about to expire, the government, uh, the CDC under now President Biden, issued a new uh, eviction moratorium, uh, which is identical to the last ones, except that it now applies to about 90% of the population rather than 100% uh, tied to coronavirus spread in your communities. But as you know, the thresholds are set very low. So almost the entire country is now covered by the president moratorium. Um, so thanks for that timeline. So let's unpack the, the legal side of this a bit. It, 
from, from what you've said, the, the initial moratorium that was authorized by Congress itself applied only to those properties, people that were actually uh, property owners that were getting something from the government in terms of subsidized mortgages or other incentives to help them own the property. This second eviction moratorium, the series that was imposed by the CDC, that's what we're dealing with now. Right. So can you dive a bit into that and explain what is the legal basis that the CDC claims that, that they have to actually impose that moratorium? What is the language? Yeah, absolutely. So well, I'll, I'll pause to note that the first one under the CARES Act, which is temporary and tied to federal funds, uh, doesn't raise the same legal issues that, that these new ones do, uh, in large part because A, it was done by Congress, and I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a moment, but also it was more like a string attached to the receipt of federal funding rather than uh, an exercise or just a, a denial of the right to pursue an eviction. Now, the CDC operates under what's called the Public Health Services Act. Um, that's right, the Public Health Services Act. And what it does is it delineates the CDC's powers. And, uh, and what it does is in the case of a pandemic, it says the CDC may issue regulations necessary to stop the spread. And then it describes the powers that it has uh, under to issue regulations. And they are powers like fumigation, extermination, sanitization, uh, and the destruction of infected animals and property. And then it says after that comma, and any such measures, of any other such measures as may be reasonably necessary. Now the CDC claims that that other measures as may be necessary is anything we want. Uh, and there's a problem with that argument from a legal standpoint, uh, several actually. Number one, it's not how we interpret statutes. Uh, number two, it doesn't make any sense from Congress's point of view. And number three, there are some serious implications down the road if the CDC can just sort of have whatever power it wants in the face of a pandemic. Uh, in terms of how we interpret statutes, what we do uh, when, when there's a legal principle, when you have a list of specifics, fumigation, uh, sanitization, extermination of infected animals, and then you follow it up by a generic, uh, we interpret the generic to mean things similar in kind, not an expansion of the power. So I'll give you a good example. If I say, Joel, let's go for a summer picnic, bring bread, cheese, and sliced meat. Uh, and whatever else you think is necessary for a summer picnic. Uh, what I'm thinking of is, you know, drinks, mayo, spreads, you know, that kind of thing. And you show up with snow skis. I mean, that's not reasonable. That's not what I intended. That's not what reasonable people think. But you said any other such equipment that's that I want right. to bring. <laughs> but that brings us to the next point. If Congress is writing a law like that, it doesn't mean for you to show up with snow skis to a summer picnic. It means other things that it has forgotten that are of like kind. Uh, but what the CDC here has said is, no, you've actually just given us all the power we could possibly want. The other principle of statutory interpretation at issue here is that we don't, in, unless Congress has clearly, is very clear that it wants to give an executive agency a huge amount of power, we don't just read that into statutes. Congress's power is Congress's power. Uh, but here the CDC has taken it uh, for itself, and that's not how we read statutes. And that brings me to the final point, which is, uh, if that's if that is how the statute is to be read, then the CDC has virtually limitless power when it comes to uh, what, however it wants to deal with any public health crisis. Yeah, and when we talk about um, those other types of powers that the CDC could claim, if they can claim the power to stop an eviction from occurring, uh, we really should think about what that might mean, in, both in this emergency and others. Um, and think about this, uh, now, the CDC has claimed that this moratorium is necessary from a health perspective. 
And whether or not you agree with that or not, the fact is that we know that for every eviction, even during a time of economic crisis, there are upwards of 15 people that choose to move voluntarily. Well, if the CDC actually did have this type of power to stop an eviction from happening in order to stop the spread of a communicable disease, well, by that logic, they would have the power to tell all of us we, can't, we cannot relocate over this year. And if they have that kind of power, well, what is to stop them from imposing a restriction like they have in Australia now, where if you leave your home and travel more than three miles, you're subject to incarceration and a criminal record. Uh, and, uh, like you said, it, it really, their powers are limitless. If they can fit into that term, other measures, the power to stop an eviction, there is virtually nothing that the CDC can't do in pursuing this health objective. Right, that's right. Uh, and then that brings us, so that's the statutory argument. That brings us to the constitutional arguments against it. Uh, remember, the CDC is exercising power that Congress has delegated to it. Congress can't delegate any power it doesn't have. Uh, so the question is, does Congress itself have the power under the Constitution to impose an eviction moratorium? Well, the Constitution gives Congress only the powers uh, expressly written in the Constitution. Uh, so the Congress would have to point to some part of the Constitution as giving it this power. The only one that even makes plausible sense is the Commerce Clause, which allows Congress to regulate commerce. Uh, but even under the, the Supreme Court's sort of expansive uh, interpretation of the Commerce Clause, this doesn't fit for a couple reasons. The first is that uh, evictions are not, are not commerce. They're not a commodity to be sold. They're not a service to be provided. Uh, they're not a good to be exchanged. They are a legal remedy uh, attached to the market of renters and leasers. Uh, they are not themselves commerce. Uh, what's more, this, the eviction moratorium calls to mind a case from the Supreme Court's last term called Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. And there the Supreme Court said that when the government of California allows union representatives to enter onto the land of farmers without their permission, uh, they have essentially deprived farmers of the right to exclude, which is of course one of the most important rights of property. Uh, this does the same thing. And if the government is going to do that, it has to pay landlords uh, for the, the uh, compensation for taking their right to exclude. Uh, so there's a strong parallel there that if the government wants to do this, if, if it even could do it under the Commerce Clause, it's still going to need to pay landlords for the, uh, the harm that it has imposed by taking away their right to evict. Uh, you also get into uh, the problem of uh, necessary and proper. Remember, the, the Constitution says that uh, to, as, as Congress um, uh, passes legislation pursuant to the other delegated powers or enumerated powers, uh, those laws have to be necessary and proper. Now, the court in NFIB versus Sibelius has said that is not itself a source of power. It's a limitation on power. Uh, here, what the eviction moratoriums do is stop, they interfere with state courts. Uh, they stop people from pursuing legal remedies in state courts. There's nothing necessary or proper about trampling on uh, state courts and people's uh, state law rights like that. Which, of course, brings us to the next problem, which is a federalism problem. You've got the, the uh, federal government saying, uh, barring access to state courts uh, and uh, criminalizing people for access to state courts. And even the way that the eviction moratorium is written, uh, it can be read as actually criminalizing state courts and state law enforcement themselves for enforcing state court judgments of eviction, uh, which is pretty wild. Um, and that brings me to the final point, which is we have a delegation problem. 
uh, the Sixth Circuit, in an opinion, after the Supreme Court's opinion, uh, striking down the moratorium, uh, explained this, and it is, look, if Congress, uh, Congress has to delegate, can delegate power, right? The Supreme Court has said that. But even your most expansive delegations have to be limited by an intelligible principle, is the quote. Well, the eviction moratorium is not limited by any intelligible, by any principle, much less an intelligible one. The, the CDC has claimed sweeping power to do anything that it thinks in its sole and unfettered discretion is necessary. Uh, that's not a, a limited uh, delegation. And even under our expansive delegation jurisprudence, it's uh, really dubious. And if the CDC can take this type of power in, real, in relation to a health emergency, um, I, I could envision many other types of emergencies that the federal government might declare, and they could use that as a as a hook to also suppress basic fundamental constitutional rights. Right. And there's no, I mean, there's no doubt that the basic constitutional right of accessing the court is being impeded here, or private property rights. But uh, who's to say that we wouldn't have a federal gun emergency, similar to what they declared in New York, right. or a, a climate emergency, which are current administration's Department of Defense says is the most important national security threat. Well, if that truly were the case, then what other federal agency might impose restrictions on our economic life without any congressional input? Right, sure. I mean, some states like Nevada and I believe Michigan have even said that racism is a public health crisis. Uh, if racism is a public health crisis, what could the CDC, or under, under its interpretation of its statute, what could the CDC not do uh, to tackle the problem of racism? Uh, and you, you can see quickly how this, there's no sort of limitation on this power at all, and it's being wielded by an executive agency, which is not accountable to the people. It's not, uh, these are not decisions being made by the people's elected representatives. Uh, and so you've got, a, you've got a big problem of delegated power and sort of the legitimacy of, of power being wielded undemocratically. And uh, yeah, I mean, and to be fair, uh, this moratorium was initially put in place in the prior administration a year ago. But at the time, we did not have input from actual courts um, on whether or not that that regulation were constitutional. I know that the Heritage Foundation and others, we warned that that was an unlawful use. Um, uh, CDC had gone far beyond its congressional mandate, but courts had not yet weighed in. But we're now a year and a half later, and now we have numerous courts that have weighed in, including the Supreme Court. And uh, for this to, uh, for this administration to, to impose a continuation of this, uh, I can't think of another instance in my legal career um, or even dating prior to that where we've had an administration so blatantly uh, go against what the courts have said. Right. And, and you know, there was, there's an argument to be made that the Supreme Court's opinion, well, Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, you know, isn't really clear because it was issued on, on a stay. So there's a different standard issue. It wasn't on the merits. But since that opinion, we had the Sixth Circuit, and the Sixth Circuit is the only opinion uh, so far to really address this on the merits because it wasn't a preliminary decision. It was on the merits. And they went through and they just picked it apart. All, you know, the constitutional arguments I made uh, just a moment ago, they adopted. The statutory arguments, they adopted. Uh, so what that means that it, at least in states within the Sixth Circuit, that's Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, and Kentucky, uh, the eviction moratorium is... Uh, unlawful and unconstitutional. Um, although, you know, query whether, because this is sort of a new one, uh, the opinion on its terms applies to it. Right? The, the, the Biden administration argues that, well, because it's now 90% uh, of the population, not 100, it's different. 
Uh, but the the argument from the the analysis from the Sixth Circuit is the CDC doesn't have the power to impose any moratorium. Sixty percent, ninety percent, one hundred percent doesn't matter. Uh, so that's that's the state of the law as we uh, where we are right now. So with that the the new moratorium the CDC issued, um, there were a number of penalties that were delineated, including six figure financial penalties right. and possible incarceration for those that for landlords that would actually go through the eviction process despite the moratorium. Based on the rulings that we've seen in numerous circuit courts and based on what we saw recently with the Supreme Court, do those criminal penalties have any teeth? Should a landlord who wishes to protect his property rights uh, does does that person have any reason to fear those penalties that were laid out in that regulation? Well, there's sort of two ways of thinking about that. At least if you're in the Sixth Circuit, uh, no, uh, from a legal standpoint, is that they would be un unenforceable uh, because the, the government doesn't have, the Sixth Circuit said the government doesn't have the power to do this. Uh, but to people who are in the position of, you know, facing arrest, even if they're going to be, you know, eventually vindicated, that's still... You know, you're still going to sit in prison while you're being tried. You're still going to have to expend, you know, money for a, for a lawyer. The the disincentive to pursue your right, even in a circuit like the sixth, where you know that you're in the right, is enormous, uh, and that's that's a huge problem. Um, so maybe you take a few minutes. Let's talk about some of the the economic. Effects, yes, yes. Uh, let me, I've been doing a lot of talking, <laughs> so let me let's turn it over to you. Uh, yeah. Tell me about the economic side of things. Uh, well, I, there's there's no doubt that um, over the past year and a half there have been very real economic um, consequences of, of shutdowns that we've seen in, in cities and, and states across the country. And there are a number of people that are still suffering from that. Despite the economic rebound, there are a number of individuals that are still displaced. And, uh, and we're, we're talking a lot about the legalities of whether or not these evictions, the, the moratorium, how, how it's unlawful and unconstitutional to put the moratorium in place. But that's not to deny that there are very there's real real pain out there. Um, but when you look at the moratorium itself, and let's go back to the peak of the pandemic uh, last spring and last summer uh, when we saw the highest levels of unemployment. Well, during that period of time, evictions were pretty much nil across the country. They were off by an excess of 90%. So only about 10% of the prior evictions were going through. But yet at the same time, the number of individuals that were actually making late payments on the rent had only increased by several percentage points. Uh, and we also have data from the Census Bureau that showed that during that time, only about 9% of families were reporting a loss of income. And that's due in large part to uh, stimulus that was being delivered by the government, uh, aid programs, jobless benefits that ensured that most people were able to earn more at home than they were on the job. But yet moratoriums were almost at zero. And that very strongly, strongly indicates that the vast majority of those that were benefiting from not being able to be evicted, um, those weren't families, the majority of them, that were actually in need. Those were often people that were taking advantage of the system. Because even though you still owe the money, uh, if you're evicted, you still owe the landlord that money. It's very difficult to collect, and oftentimes you can declare bankruptcy and not pay a dime of it. You just move move on. That's something very important to keep in mind. Um, but but second of all, uh, Congress did make provisions um, to provide aid to uh, to landlords and to tenants. In fact, more than 40 billion of that aid, more than 90% of the aid that was uh, allocated, still has not been delivered, uh, and that's due in large part because 
there are some cities and some states have attached so many strings to that aid. For instance, if you're in New York City and you're a property owner, if you accept a dollar of that federal aid distributed from the state to help make up back payments, you have to agree not only to allow that tenant who hasn't made rental payments in a year to stay in the property, you have to agree that even if that tenant continues to miss payments going forward, that you'll refrain from evicting them for an additional year. So you can imagine the consternation with a lot of uh, property owners that, that they don't want the aid because they're taking on so much risk. And that compares wildly to places um, in, in Texas and Des Moines where most of the aid has been distributed. So there's been a dramatic difference in how states are actually allocating um, this, uh, this aid. But longer term, I'm very concerned that this is going to impact having this precedent is going to impact not just property owners, but it really will impact just regular individuals as well who are renting. You're going to see landlords, it's already happening. Landlords are going to have to increase the rental prices to compensate for the risk factor. Credit standards are going to tighten. Security deposits are going to increase. And over this past year and a half, and a lot of neighbors, especially in apartment complexes and urban areas, you know, it, um, you, you probably experienced this on occasion. I've lived in Chicago and DC in, in, in close quarters with others. When you have a, a scenario in which you cannot evict people, uh, those that are engaged in disorderly conduct or noise violations or drug use or criminal activity, that impacts everybody around them because now there's almost no way to actually rid the complex of the person that's causing so much problems. This is really, it, it turns into a quality of life issue. Uh, a question I had for you, I was looking at, you know, data about um, these relief funds and trying to compare them to the actual costs that landlords are facing and, and trying to determine whether the relief funds available match up to the, 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 the harms that the eviction moratoriums have imposed. The best number I could find was a study uh, from January uh, that said we're looking at about $70 billion in arrears. Uh, rent in arrears, and we're looking at just under $50 billion in rent funds. Do you have any updates on those numbers? What do those numbers tell you? Um, so some of those numbers are really hard to get specifics on, but what those initial numbers um, indicate, we need to keep in mind that the total amount of rent that is in arrears, that is not just related to people that actually had economic problems through this crisis. And let's keep in mind, we, we've got a number of states that have economies bigger now than they did before. We have more jobs, job openings than we do people unemployed. We have an all-time record number of job openings. And we had a tremendous amount of aid delivered to people who were officially unemployed during this crisis. Most people, the vast majority of people, earned more off the job than on the job. So when you look at those total rental payments in arrears, that's not just rent that's owed by people that actually were struggling through this time. Much of that represents people that chose not to make rental payments because they knew that they would be able to stay in their apartment or their home without risk of being evicted. This is a big, big problem. Um, but there's a lot of aid available. And the big issue now is how do we distribute that aid to those that actually need it? And as mentioned before, there's a lot of red tape in some areas, um, but places like Des Moines, a number of counties in Texas have distributed most of the aid that they were allocated, but you have you have holdouts. Places like New York City, last I checked, the total amount of aid that had been distributed in New York City represented less than 
of what the city was allocated. $117,000 total had been distributed to a city of what, 8 million people? Uh, so it's, it's a big problem. Right. So in our last few minutes, we're, we're looking at, you know, state policymakers, Congress, what, are, what, what can they be doing uh, with these moratoriums, with the funds available to them? You know, what's their action plan? Uh, well, on a state level, legislators have not just the power, but the responsibility to ensure that through the remainder of this crisis and possibly the next, that governors aren't able to act in a manner that goes beyond what emergency the emergency powers that they have. Um, we've seen excesses on the federal level. We've also seen it on the state level. And um, you know, when we see the moratorium issued by the CDC, well, there's also the risk that uh, such an infringement on basic constitutional rights could occur on the state level as well. But legislators have the power to clarify these emergency orders, clarify the emergency powers, and block their governors from acting in a way that would threaten property rights and that would threaten economic opportunity. Um, we saw a number of legislatures through the crisis do this um, in um, well, Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, um, Wisconsin. A number of states worked, had legislators that worked very hard to ensure that their governors did not engage in more overreach. And how about Congress? What can Congress do? Uh, Congress, too, has a, a big responsibility here. Over the decades now, we have seen um, immense discretion given to the president and to cabinet secretaries to, in effect, legislate during times of national emergencies or crisis. Those powers tend to only grow and, and expand. The discretion seems to only grow and expand. So with everything, with all the abuses that we have seen, some of them flat out unconstitutional, that we've seen on the federal level in the executive branch over the past year and a half, that I think Congress bears a responsibility to look through every piece of emergency legislation and emergency powers legislation and clarify it, Clar the, clarify these vague terms. Any term that could possibly be used to, to uh, em empower the executive branch at the expense of Congress, they should clarify that and rein those powers in. Well, thank you all for joining us. Joel, it's been a pleasure to have you uh, talk about the eviction moratorium. Yeah, thank you.